Okay, let's get our Bibles out and open up to Proverbs 25. We're in part nine of our series, The Nine. And what we're doing is looking at each of these nine individual uh, characteristics of the character of Christ, known as the fruit of the Spirit. And today we get to uh, our final one, the rundown city principle that we're going to see from Proverbs 25, page 755 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you need a copy of God's Word, just grab that Pew Bible, open up to 755, and you'll find Proverbs 25 there. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we study His Word and to do what only He can do among us. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for this day. You've already blessed us in such an enormous and wonderful way, and God, we are grateful and thankful for that. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, God, we pray that you would give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, that you promise to always fill. Father, we thank you for this perfect and errant gift that you've given to us. And Lord, we know today you have instruction for each of us here, Lord. God, help us to now, in this moment, to prepare ourselves that what we're about to read and study is not the words of men, but it is the very word of God. And Lord God, you have said And therefore, we should obey. And so we thank you, Lord God, in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Bible says in Galatians 5.22, as we've studied through the book of Galatians for the last, I believe, 22 weeks now, uh, that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Last but not least, self-control. Now, I know you've all been looking forward to this sermon. You've all been thinking, oh, forget about love and joy and peace. We're wanting self-control. That's what we want to hear about. Now, I know that there's been some trepidation. Uh, Maybe a few people tried to sleep in this morning, but your spouse was like, oh, no, you ain't missing this one. But here we are together looking at self-control. And I do not think that... Uh, We should overlook the significance. I think God does everything on purpose. And I think the fact that self-control is listed last is for a reason. Remember that the reason we're having this conversation is that when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are then indwelled by the Spirit of God. And when you have the Spirit of God within you, the character and nature of that Spirit is going to begin to work its way out in your life. And so as that's happening... There's a war that's going on inside each and every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. There's the, uh, a war between the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit and then the flesh, or our own spirit and the works of the flesh. Remember back in Galatians 5.17 that the Bible says that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh and these are opposed to one another. And so there's this angst, this internal uh, just continuous war and challenge. And that every time uh, there's a, uh, an opportunity before you, every time there's a temptation, every decision that you make, in every moment of every day, these two opposing forces are going on uh, warring with each other inside of you. And, and in the midst of it, uh, we are, uh, have the opportunity to yield to the Spirit or to succumb to the pressures of the flesh. And as we grow in Christ through this process of sanctification, our hope and our prayer is that we would become more and more with each passing day 
like the Lord Jesus in His character and nature. Now, the way we're going to begin this morning, before we get to Proverbs 25, is we're going to look at a passage from Deuteronomy 17. Now, all these will come up on the screen, but if you want to go to Deuteronomy 17 or mark that place in your Bible so you can go back and look at what we're going to talk about, I want you to, I want to set the stage for what I'm about to say. Because again, the great challenge each week as we've gone through these different characteristics of the character of Christ is for us to lessen them or overlook them or sort of succumb to a worldly understanding of what God is trying to say. And I know that the the flesh that's working contrary to the Spirit in each of us works hard to try to convince us that well, you know, self-control, is, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not that important. I mean, it's uh, maybe something that I can just devote myself to and that I can uh, just become a little bit better at and then it's going to do some, some good and prosperous things in my life. Well, that's why we're going to look first at Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses is instructing God's people. And I want you to understand something. We have limited time this morning. I wish we had three hours, but we don't. And I'm not going to take three hours, but I could. And you know that. Moses is instructing God's people prior to their entrance into the promised land. He's telling them what is uh, how they're to live in the promised land. Now, understand, this is not just about these people moving into this land, that everything that's going on in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ is pointing forward to a new day, a, 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 the dawning of the fulfillment of all the things that the Old Testament is prophesying. And so everything that God's calling his people to do in Deuteronomy 17, for example, is for a very specific reason. So let's just look at this one little snapshot of what God is saying to his people about how they're to live and conduct themselves. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren that you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, let's just stop there and think about this for a second. God is saying that when you go into the promised land, there will come a day when you're going to want to have a king. You're going to feel vulnerable. You're going to feel uh, like you are susceptible to uh, other nations or other countries or whatever the case may be. And you're going to decide that you want a king, which we know ends up happening. And that's the, the dawning of Saul and then David and Solomon and so on and so forth. And so when that happens, God says... You're going to choose not just anybody, but you're going to choose a specific kind of king. And the first thing you're going to understand is that you don't choose your king. I choose your king. God is making very clear that his people understand that he chooses their king. That whomever God's people place their allegiance to, whomever they surrender their lives to, is up to God and not up to us and that we aren't to choose whomever we want to serve or whatever we want to surrender to. That's important. And he says that this king that he's going to choose is not going to be a foreigner. It's not going to be somebody outside of the kingdom of God, but it's going to be a brother. It's going to be someone who is one of us, someone who is from within. Verse 16. 
About this king he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, and he, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in the book, from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this, of this law and the statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. Now notice what God says. You're going you're gonna to desire a king, and I'm going to provide you a king, but I'm going to choose who's going to be your king, and the person I choose is going to be a brother. He's going to be one of you. And what are the characteristics of this king? This king, first of all, is not going to get tangled up pursuing worldly pursuits. He's not going to be tied up with uh, satisfying the desires of his flesh and multiplying his horses or his silver or his gold. That's not going to be the kind of king that you're going to have. God's saying you must have a king who has control over his desires. You do not put your allegiance in someone who just goes with the whims of the world, who just chases the things that the world may prop up and put up as good and profitable and wonderful and praiseworthy. But this king is going to devote himself to that which matters most and not which makes him popular. He says that also in verse 18 that he's going to sit on the throne of his kingdom. And when he does so, he's going, to, he's going to write himself a copy of this law in a book. And as he does that, he's going to be supervised by the priests, by the Levites. Now, God is saying that this king who's from within, that's a brother, who doesn't pursue worldly pursuits, who has control over his desires, whom is acceptable for you to put your allegiance in because he's placed him here, that king, that specific particular king is going to be a man under authority. He's going to be in authority over the people, but he's going to be under the authority of Almighty God. You understand? So his authority is not going to be universal. He's going to be a man of great authority, but under authority. And he wants his people to learn to submit to that kind of king. And then look at what he says about this king. This king is not just going to talk about the things of God. He's not just going to know about the things of God. But in verse 19, he's going to read the Word of God, all the days of his life. He's going to learn and know it in his heart that he's going he's to grow in the, in the fear and wisdom of the Lord, that he's going to understand the statutes of God and that he's not going to elevate himself over the people to whom he's been charged to serve. So this godly king that God appoints, who's a brother, who's from within, who doesn't pursue worldly things but has control over his desires is going to know and love and obey God's Word, and he's also going to have the heart of a servant. And look at verse 20. That this heart, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment 
to the right or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. Now, what do you think God is doing in Deuteronomy 17? Do you think that that's just some obscure Old Testament passage that maybe you're reading along in your quiet time and you pass through that and you just think, well, that's just what God wants to say about that particular thing to that particular people? No. Nothing in the Bible is just there for you to just glaze over and just think, well, that's just some remote verse that really doesn't have anything to do with me. Everything that God is doing in Deuteronomy 17 is in preparation for you today, right here in this moment. And what I'm going to say today started right there. That God has always from the beginning ordained that he would have a people who would submit to a king, but not just any king, to a special king, to a particular king, to a king that he would appoint. And here's the kind of king that he's going to use to pave the way until the king does. And when the king comes, what does the Bible say? That he's the firstborn among many brethren. You see that he's one of us. That he, he meets the qualification of being a brother. Jesus was not interested in multiplying horses. He wasn't interested in his bank account balance. He wasn't interested in gold and silver. He wasn't interested in all the things the world had to offer. He had the control, the self-control to discipline himself against the, the whimsical nature of the people around him and to stay focused on what mattered most and to accomplish the work that God had called him to do. And he was a man under authority, wasn't he? That Jesus over and over said, Not my will, Father, but your will. That he was God incarnate. That he was in utter and complete control and authority. And yet he's under the authority of God the Father. That what God is preparing in Deuteronomy 17 is a picture of the ultimate king that's going to come. That God wants us to understand that all the way from the beginning he was establishing a pattern. That before you submit your life to the kingship of someone, before you submit your life to following and obeying someone or something, you make sure that it meets these qualifications. And that he would have a heart of a servant. That he wouldn't come for his own glory, but that he might come to what? To seek and to save those who were lost. That he didn't come. He didn't come for himself, but he came for others. And I want you to see that this is the beginning of the picture of the king that God wants us to serve. And not only that, that even today, right now where you're sitting, what is God preparing you for? I mean, is this the end of the line? The danger is for you to think that right now in this moment, it's sort of, you're, you're sort of at the, the tail end. The, the scripture's now closed, the canon's closed, and everything's done. And so we're just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, whittling on a stick, waiting on God to come back. Or is He preparing you for something? What's ahead for you in eternity? What will you be doing in eternity? Does the Bible not say that you will rule? You will rule in heaven. That God is preparing you for heaven. That He's preparing you to, in this life, to, through His Spirit, through the work of the Spirit, through the fruit of the Spirit in your life, He's preparing you, sanctifying you, 
for your moment of glorification, when you will rule with Him in heaven. And what kind of, what kind of ruler will you be in heaven? You'll be this kind. Because this is the only kind that God has, the only kind that God tolerates, the only kind that God puts up with. And so God is preparing you today for something. And He's been doing that for thousands of years. And it's consistently been working and working and working and working towards the moment in time when God decides, okay, now, I have been patient and long-suffering. I have waited and waited and waited. And some of you may wonder, you know, why is God allowing all the horrible things to happen that are happening in the world? Why doesn't He just come back now? Well, that's awfully selfish for you to say since you're so excited about going to heaven, which I am too. But on the other side, what about all the people who aren't? Have you ever thought about the compassion and mercy of God who's who's sees all the horrific things that are going on. And yet in His grace and His mercy and His forbearance, He he waits and waits and waits and gives yet another opportunity, another opportunity for more to come to Him. Because once He comes, the door is shut. It's shut. And so it's not about... That's why we don't know when He's coming. There there won't be any last-minute rushes into the church for everybody to get themselves right. It doesn't work like that. Like a thief in the night, He's coming. But make no mistake about it, He is coming. And He has been preparing for this moment since the beginning of time. So let's talk about self-control. Because it's very, very important. God would never put a king over His people. He would never put His people in submission to authority that didn't have self-control. Why? Because He expects you to have self-control. For example, in the King James, the word is temperance, not self-control. And we don't even use the word temperance. We use the word temper, but in a sort of negative context. But what is self-control? Is self-control just sort of the, uh, the ability to be able to, you know, just stop after three Oreos? Is that what self-control is? Is self-control... The ability to only go two or three miles over the speed limit on the interstate? I mean, what is self-control? I mean, how, how big of an issue is this with God? And what exactly does He mean? Well, the, the word that's used for self-control, it's a, it's a Greek word. And it means to have mastery over oneself. It, it's all about this war that's going on between the flesh and the spirit. And a person who has self-control is a person who is able to yield to the Spirit of God, yield to the Spirit of God, and not succumb to the desires of the flesh. You see, the desires of the flesh are always trying to distract us and derail us. Think of it this way. Self-control is the ability to do that which is important, not that which is urgent. You see, the the world in which we live in is designed to mislead you and misguide you and lie to you. And one of the most effective ways the enemy does that, one of the most effective ways the flesh is derailing so many of the lives in this room is with urgency. It's with urgency. It's the only way that we could sit here all day and 
talk about all the reasons why we don't do the things we ought to do. I mean, the minute that I bring up the topic of how we doing reading our Bible every day, how we doing praying every day, shoulders begin to slump down, heads begin to tilt forward, body language begins to change. Because you know the truth is you do everything that you really want to do. And so you end up like Paul saying the things I want to do I don't do and the things I don't want to do are the things I end up doing. And how does the enemy do that to us? Through urgency. And what happens is months become years, years become decades and suddenly we're looking back and we have all these regrets and we realize that have we really devoted our lives to that which is most important? Have we really? Someday soon I'm going to I'm going to devote a whole Sunday morning just to the parents in this faith family with young children. Because there's so much here. As I prayed for you and studied for this message, I had such a great burden for all of the time and the energy and the effort that the world is sucking you into that is going to yield Zippo spiritually. Nothing. That all of the trophies and the accolades and the, the, the championship games and all the time and all the energy that's being devoted to things that is taking the place of what is most important. Now notice something. When Moses was talking about the king, he didn't say horses were bad. He didn't say gold was bad, silver was bad. He didn't say any of that was bad. But he said too much of it is bad. Pursuing it is bad. And that's what urgency does. It gets us, we we get ourselves tangled up into things and before we know it, our lives are so complex and we're running around in circles. But what matters the most just somehow just disappears into thin air. Well, what happened? How, How is it that I can quote so little Scripture and yet I've been a Christian for so long? How is it that I have... Such little command over the Word of God. And yet I've I've heard so many sermons. Don't wait until your kids are teenagers to realize, Houston, we have a problem. Listen. Listen to the testimony of a young man. On the cusp of adulthood. And what does he say? I'm so grateful that I won the Timothy Award. Well, you know what, Zach? I'm so grateful that you're grateful that you won the Timothy Award. Praise God for that. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Here's what the wisest man who ever lived says. The challenge with the book of Proverbs is that we as a culture, we just want this instantaneous five-step. Just, just tell us the five things to do. Just give me the, the steps. Give me the, give me the manual. Give me the directions. Give me the protocol so I can just go through. Well, Proverbs doesn't work like that. Proverbs doesn't tell you necessarily here's all the right things to do. It tells you here's how to become a person who does the right things. Proverbs is about transformation from the inside out. And so when, when the book of Proverbs says something, I mean, just 
Each proverb, so oftentimes I just meditate on one simple proverb. I've shared testimonies with you of how one proverb, by meditating on one proverb, my entire, the trajectory of my life has completely changed. That some of the biggest decisions that I have made in my life that have impacted me for the glory of God have been through studying the book of Proverbs. And just meditating on simple phrases like this one. Proverbs 25, verse 28. The Bible says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now there's a good proverb for us all to meditate on. That wisdom, perfect wisdom from God, says that a man... Without, same word, self-control. Notice, Solomon says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit, not the capital S spirit, but the what wars against that spirit. So you've got your own spirit, the flesh, and then we've got God's spirit that's working within us. And so a man without self-control It's like a city, literally, that's broken into, that's been ransacked and left without walls. Now, let's think about this for a second. What does this mean? What is the Bible trying to tell us about self-control? Well, the first thing is, let's just look at the, the obvious. What is a city without walls? A city without walls... To anyone who's even remotely familiar with the Bible, especially the Old Testament, a city without walls is defenseless. It's a defenseless city. If a city has no walls, it has no way to defend itself against the marauders who seek to come in. Now, let me clarify something. To some of us who have a tendency to uh, live in the land of denial, we might think of a city with no walls and think, What a lovely place. They just welcome everyone. You can just come right in. You know, you come over the hill and you see a city with no walls and you think, look at that beautiful city right there. They just want everyone to visit them. That's not what this city is. This city has been ransacked and broken down. It's not a it's not a good thing. There were cities, biblical cities. That didn't have walls. And they were the most horrific places that anybody would ever live. All the hearers in Solomon's day would have known that. That would have been horrible. Those would have been the places you would never go. Because you they were so dangerous and so horrible. that, That almost like the book of Judges said. That every man just did what was right in his own eyes. It was absolute anarchy. And you would never want that. Now, we know that's not the case here, that that this isn't a city that's a welcoming place. Why? Well, first of all, it's already been broken into. You see, the only way a city without walls would be a good thing is if there was no danger, right? If there was no danger in the world, then why would we need walls? It would be good to have a city with no walls. Well, we know that's not the case because, first of all, we're not naive enough to believe that. But we're talking about a city that's already been broken into. So we know there's danger because it's already been attacked. Therefore, the mess that it's in now. Second of all, the city was originally built with walls. Therefore, there must, no one just builds walls for no reason. I mean, read the whole book of Nehemiah. Look at what it takes to build walls. 
They built the walls for a reason. The reason the walls were there is because it's dangerous outside. Because we've got to protect ourselves. Now you think about your life. You think about your nice, comfortable city and its walls, physically speaking. You ever been laying in bed at night, about to go to sleep, and suddenly you think, did I lock the door? Now, I don't know how this goes in your house, but in my house, when my wife says, is the door locked? Even if I know it is, I, I just sit there quietly. Because it's stewing. In other words, I know she can't stand it. So she's just sitting there, sitting there. Sitting. And about the time she goes to jump, I go, that's locked, it's locked, it's locked. Because she's not going to go to sleep if the door is not locked. But now take it a step further. What if you were sleeping or living in a house that didn't have a door? See, we're talking about a city who's, we're not talking about unlocked doors on the wall. We're talking about broken down walls. So you're living in a house that doesn't even have a door. Would you be comfortable going to sleep at night in a house with no door? I don't think I would. Now, again, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think ahead for you. What does the scripture say about a life that has no self-control. It's like a person who lives in a house that doesn't have doors. It's like a city that doesn't have walls. It's defenseless to whatever seeks to come against it. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, now, now wait a minute, Pastor. I could live in a house with no doors. Because I can defend myself. Well, good. I'm glad I get to shatter that myth. The Bible's not saying that the city with no walls can't fight. The Bible's saying that the city without walls can't win. You see, you may live in a house with no doors, let's say. And you may feel like you're fortified to the extent that you can protect yourself and those that you're charged to protect. And that's all well and dandy if danger comes one person at a time or two people at a time. But what happens if an army descends on your house with no walls all at the same time? What are you going to do? You can't defend everyone against everything all the time. You can't keep up. They're coming from every direction. You see, the point that Solomon is making, what God wants us to understand here is that a lack of self-control puts you in a defenseless position against everything that this world desires to throw at you, to derail you, distract you, and destroy you. And what you don't want to be is defenseless when you know there's danger there. And we all know. There's danger. And the last thing I want to be is like a city that has no walls. Now, let's go back to Galatians 5.17 for a minute. This will come up on the screen. So there's this war between the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit and the spirit against the desires of the flesh and they're opposed to one another. And then what does Paul say? He says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
that when the Bible talks about the works of the flesh or your own spirit, they're the things that you want to do. They're the, the desires that you have. They're the, the, the places you want to go, the things you want to buy, the things you want to do with your time. The things, they're not the things that are being handed down to you by some perfect authority that you're receiving from that perfect authority. No, you're not submitted to this perfect king that God has been painting a picture of for thousands and thousands of years. No, you're choosing to do things your own way. Either you want to be your own king or you're letting the culture, society be your king or whatever the case may be. Maybe your kids are your king or your spouse is your king or your job is your king or whatever is your king. And you're submitting to that and you're just doing whatever you want to do. The Bible says that the spirit wars against the flesh in an effort to keep you from doing what you want to do. So here's what you need to know this morning. That where you go in this life, that what your what your life legacy is, what you have at the end of your life, what you've achieved for the glory of God in the days in which God has given you, however you want to say it, however you want to look at it, what is going to determine what that is, is not based on what you desire. Desire will lead you astray. It's discipline. Discipline not desire that will determine your destiny. Will it not? Yes. You see, people who have self-control don't do what they want to do. They don't do what is urgent. They do what's most important. Case in point, notice the Lord Jesus as He perfectly exhibits every quality of the fruit of the Spirit. How does G- He shows us self-control in a thousand different ways. But it, certainly, as I referred to last week, He's not in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony, sweating drops of blood because He's doing what He wants to do. But He doesn't waver. He doesn't back up. He doesn't retreat. He does what? He's come to do. He does what God's called him to do. He does what the authority over him has called him to do. And in perfect obedience, he sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem for a cross that would free mankind from their sins. And so it's not desire. Wanting to do good is not enough. This is the great fallacy. That I'm telling you, if I could somehow get everyone in this room to understand wanting to do good. I mean, when you say to yourself, oh, I so wanted to do that. It is such a worthless statement. It's worthless. Because you didn't do it. If want were enough, we wouldn't wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't need this to be a fruit of the Spirit. Wanting is not it. Wanting's not going to get you there. Your passions and your desires are going to lead you astray. Again, why did God say that in Deuteronomy 17? Why did His people need a king? Why didn't they just stay the way they were? 
Because here's what happens. Without, without God-ordained authority in your life, you know what you'll do? You'll, no matter how bad you want to do the right thing, you'll slowly gravitate away. And here's how you'll do it. Maybe some of you in here, this will resonate in your heart. You have experienced this very thing. You are, you are dutifully obeying God. You are going to church. You are reading your Bible. You are having a quiet time, a prayer time. But your life is starting to drift off the tracks. And somewhere along the line, you wake up and think, wait a minute, what's happening here? Why am I? I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I know that I shouldn't be doing them, but I'm doing them. And why am I doing this? And here's what happens. Without authority in your life, you'll begin to just manufacture in your mind what you think the, the Word of God is telling you to do. You see, if, if you don't have... If you don't have God-ordained authority in your life directing you along the path, if you're not seeking godly counsel and wisdom, if you're not hearing from God's perspective, you can take the Bible. Listen, most of the craziest cults in the world run around shaking their Bible. The same Bible you've got in your lap. They just twist it all around, tangle it all up, use it to justify all sorts of things. You don't think you're capable of that? Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, I am. That's why we have to be under authority. That's why God puts us under authority, not just any authority, but a specific authority. An authority that, that not only reads, studies, knows the Word of God, obeys the command, doesn't move to the left or to the right. And what happened to, to the kings that didn't, Follow God's command. Did God say to the people, well, you blew it. You should have taken care of that. Why did you, why did you let him become king? No. Who took care of it? God took care of it. Who did he say would appoint the king? He said, I will appoint the king. He said, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go out and find a king. I'll appoint the king for you. I'll put the king there. We didn't have to go out and manufacture the Lord Jesus Christ. God took care of that. And He puts you in the care of a shepherd who's an under-shepherd in authority. You see? So that we're not left to the wiles of our imagination, following our passions and our desires and then being ransacked by the invaders. Now, here's where we need to change our conversation a little bit. You see, it is true, it is true that self-control, we could have spent all our time this morning talking about how self-control will, will help you. It'll help you be a more efficient person. It'll help you accomplish more things. It will help, it will help you in a number of ways. It, it will help you and benefit you and it will raise the standard of your life by pursuing and Establishing self-control as, a, as an attribute in your life. All of that is true. But that is so far beneath the most important reason that we need to consider this issue of self-control. You see, if you are here this morning and you would say that I am a Christian, that I know 
that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that He is the one who has paid the penalty and the debt for my sin and that I know that I will be with Him in heaven forever. If that's you, if you are a Christian this morning, then let's consider what is really at stake with self-control. Because the issue for you is not really eternal in the sense that your self-control is not going to determine your destination. But it is going to have a whole lot to do, a whole lot to do with what happens at your arrival. You see, to say that I'm a Christian, to say that Jesus Christ has done the unthinkable, that God sent His Son to live the life that I could never live and to pay the debt that I could never pay, and that on His behalf, on His credit, I am now reconciled to God and seen as righteous. To say that is to say something spectacular has happened. That I have been the recipient of this unbelievable gift. That to say I'm a Christian is to say that I have been redeemed. And by redeemed, I was redeemed through the payment of the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was paid on my behalf. That it's not just that my sins have been forgiven. It's not just that I was facing the penalty of this enormous rap sheet, all of which I had accomplished and all of it that I deserved. It's not that the judge dismissed the charges against you. You see, this is what you've got to understand. Your charges were not dismissed. Someone paid it. Someone paid the full penalty, every penny of your debt on your behalf. And that someone is now the one that you claim to be your king. And if that's the case, then what price has he paid for this moment in your life right now? This moment right now. That this, this five minutes right now, what did he pay for, for you to sit in this building and say that you're a Christian for this five minutes right now, how much did that cost? How much did he pay for the time that you spend gazing into the computer screen? How much blood did it take to redeem you for the hours and hours and hours on Facebook? How much blood did it take to redeem you For the endless, endless litany of video games. How much blood did that cost? What was the price for you to be able to say that I'm a Christian? And to wander around aimlessly. And to just do with your time as you please. And to just... Fill your life with lots of things that aren't necessarily bad, but they're not necessarily good. What did that cost? What did it cost? Do you think that the king who paid that debt 
is saying, oh, I'm, I'm okay with that. That's fine. It's no problem. Do you think that? What did it cost for you to have the opportunity to spend time with Him? To somehow carve into all of the chaos and all of the busyness and all of the things. What did it cost for you to have an opportunity to carve into that some time to spend with Him? Some time to fellowship with Him in His Word. Some time to speak to Him in prayer. Because I want you to understand something. And I say this because I love you. That when you say, you know, I really wish that I could get myself up earlier. I really wish that I would turn the TV off and go to sleep earlier. I really wish that the kids weren't so busy. I wish that I had time to spend with God. I want you to understand what that cost, the one that you call king. I want you to consider the weight of the payment that allows you to say, I am a Christian. Now understand something. He didn't say that horses were bad. He didn't say silver was bad and he didn't say gold was bad. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad either. But I'm simply saying that when those things begin to override the important things in your life, when those things become the things that you submit yourself to, when they are, in effect, the authority in your life. Because do you know what, ladies and gentlemen? The authority in your life is not what you say it is. The authority in your life is what you obey. And let's just be real honest about it. There's a whole bunch of families that the coach of their kid's team is their king. There's a whole bunch of folks that all your electronic made-up friends are your king. There's people trying to live in every fantasy land and run off into every kind of bizarre thing. For what? When you have the perfect king, the perfect king, who's paid the ultimate price. Trust me, he's not okay with it. He's not okay with it. Because it cost him everything. So you know why self-control matters in this room right now is because every person in here 
who says, I'm a Christian, needs to be reminded that you have received a treasure in Jesus Christ. That your king, though he is patient and kind and gentle, that you should not trample on his patience or his gentleness or his kindness. That he's holding you to self-control. And that you will, you will give an account for all of those minutes and all of those hours and all of those days. You will stand before Him face to face. You won't stand before me. You won't stand before anybody else. You'll stand before Him. You will look Him in His eyes. You will see the holes in His hands and in His feet of the remnants of what He did to free you from your sin. And you will give account for what you did on this earth, in this life, for His glory. You'll give account for that. And so do not, do not be foolish. Do not think that a city without walls is going to just rock along in happiness. It's not going to happen. You're at war. Some of you, the enemy has set up camp inside your walls and is wreaking havoc on you. It's wreaking havoc. It matters to Him. Jesus didn't die so that we could chase fame and fortune. He didn't die so that we could become popular. He didn't die so that we could do the things that our desires and our wants wanted. No. He died that we might have life and life more abundantly. That's right. In His way, there's more joy times a million than any other way. Look at what the Bible says in Titus chapter 2. If you go home today and read Titus 2, you'll see that a lot of what God's talking about in that chapter is about self-control. But in verse 13, the Bible says that Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So in other words, I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to think that I'm just up here ranting and raving about something that I want to be true. I'm telling you the reason why God did what he did. He did what he did. He looked at his son. He looked at the one he loved with his perfect love. And he sent him away knowing that the day was going to come when he was going to have to turn his back on him. And he was going to have to watch him bleed out for the sins of guilty people. He did that for a reason. And the reason is to redeem a special people who were zealous for good works. He didn't do that to redeem a people who would lollygag through life. He didn't do that for a bunch of people who would say, I wish I wanted to, I could have, I should have. But I didn't do it. That's not why he did that. He did that for his special people who were fully equipped, who will have absolutely no excuses. No one will stand before him and say, God, I would have if I could have. Oh, no. Every single thing that you need for life and godliness has been given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what his word says. Everything that you're not lacking anything. That you have the capacity and power to live a life for the greatness and the glory of God. 
and wishing that you'd share the gospel with your co-workers, wishing that you had spent time teaching your children the word of God, wishing that you have devoted time to your marriage, wishing that you had been an upstanding citizen at work and brought God glory, wishing all those things will be worthless. Wishing won't get you there. Discipline will. First Peter chapter two. The Bible says that those who are saved are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. How could it be, Lord, how could it be that that there could be a people who could exist in the security of a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, who could exist in the confidence in Christ that they're a holy nation, who could walk around in this in the security of their salvation because of the work of the Lord Jesus, but who would forget to proclaim His praises, who would forget who they once were, who would forget who they now are, who would forget how they got from where they were to where they are, who would give their lives to pursuing Little things. When the opportunity, the opportunity to bring glory to God is right there for every one of us. It's right there. And there's going to be times that you don't feel like it. There's going to be times that it's not convenient. For goodness sakes, Look at your children and tell them no. Sorry. We can't do everything. We're not going to do this, that, and the other. We're just not going to do it. Because we're not going to submit to that king. We'll do something, but we're not going to do everything because we're going to make sure that what's most important is what we're going to do. We're not going to substitute obeying the king that God's put us under authority to for some lesser pursuit. We're just not going to do it. Now, once we've submitted to the king's authority, once we've given him the glory that he deserves, once we've committed our hearts to that, then if there's room for other things, then be free. Be free. You see, if you walk out of here today under the weight of guilt, For all of the squandered opportunities. But you miss the reality that you are no longer in darkness, that you've been called into his marvelous light, that the opportunity right now today is open. That what the enemy wants you to do is labor in the yesterdays is linger in the rearview mirror, is focus in the places you can't do anything about. And the Spirit of God is saying, no, 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 no. Take this moment right now and just wrestle in your heart what God's saying to you right now. Right now, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how long it's been, no matter how many things that you look and you don't don't let the enemy start telling you all the things that have happened that you can't undo. Listen, don't put parameters on God. 
Just focus on right now. What did it cost for you to have the freedom right now to sit in this place and say, I'm a Christian? That for nine weeks, I've listened as God has poured out His character and His nature upon us. What are we going to do with it? There's a war out there. There's a war out there. Some of you are going to go forward this week. You're going to take this message to heart. And here's what you're going to find. That as your week progresses, slowly in small ways, you're going to notice what's going on around you. And when things start looking different and things start feeling different and suddenly you, 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 you look at the surface and nothing's really changed, you're, you're still getting up at the same time and going to the same job and everything seems to be the change, but there's this victory. There's this sense of peace that's come over your life. And what you're going to find is you are now beginning to experience life as a city with impenetrable walls. And that is the world wages war around you. You're in a strong tower. You're submitted to a great king. You're secure. You're secure in him. And your whims and your desires. Here's how you know you're making progress is when you're looking back over your recent past and you're thinking, what was I thinking? Some of the things I did two months ago, what was I thinking? A fortress in a world of chaos. Living for the glory of God. Let's stand. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for being the perfect, glorious, amazing, wonderful king that you are. Father, we thank you for the infinite price that you paid for this very moment, for the breath that comes in and out of our lungs right now, for us to be able to respond to what we've just heard. God, thank you. Thank you for the families whose trajectory will change. Thank you for the marriages whose destiny just got back on the rails. Thank you for the relationships that you will mend. Thank you for the impossible things that you will do in the lives of those who submit to you. God, free us from chasing the tyranny of the urgent. And God, release us. Release us in the joy of doing that which is most important. Father God, thank you. Thank you for what you'll do. Now in this moment, you are king. 
we submit to you. Whatever you're calling anyone in this room to do, Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name, they will obey you. They will obey you. Whether you are calling them to join this fellowship or you're calling them to get baptized or you're calling them to yourself for salvation, whatever it is, you're the king. You're the king. Give us the discipline to yield to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.